It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. I'm your host, Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law, and I have with me today Professor of Law Michael Madison. He is a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, where he's been since 2008. Um, and he's also the John E. Murray Faculty Scholar. He's a senior scholar with the University of Pittsburgh Institute for Cyber Law, Policy, and Security, and faculty director of Pittsburgh Law's Future Law Project. Welcome, Professor Madison. It's my pleasure to be here. We were introduced recently because I started this podcast, and uh, that was a new thing for me, and you graciously reached out and shared with me that you have been keeping a list of podcasts uh, that law professors and others have started because you yourself have had a podcast uh, for a while. Tell me a little bit about your podcast. My podcast is called The Future Law Podcast. It's a very clever name for a podcast that is about the future of law and the future of legal education and the future of legal systems and the future of the legal profession, and the future of legal tech, all things legal, all things futuristic. That's what we talk about on the Future Law Podcast. We have had this uh, published since the latter part of 2019. So it's a, about two years old. It was launched originally as a partnership uh, between myself and Dan Hunter who was a super law professor and dean down in Australia. At the time, he was in Melbourne at Swinburne. Uh, he has since moved up to Brisbane, and he is now at the Queensland University of Technology. But in his transition to Brisbane, Dan stepped away for the podcast. So for the last year plus, I have been recording and producing the Future Law Podcast on my own and having a great time. Glad to hear it. and. Uh you had to be one of the first law professors doing a podcast. Am I right about that? I'm not sure about first. I think that those of us who have podcasts are probably the earlier part of this wave of social media. Mm -hmm. The list that you refer to, the list of American academics in law with law-themed podcasts is a list that I publish on my blog. Uh, the blog is called madisonian.net. So if anybody's interested in finding that list or adding a podcast to that list because I missed it, and I'm definitely interested in including podcasts from outside the U.S. as well as podcasts from inside the U.S., uh, the, pub, the list is public. What I do think is that the wave of podcasting in law and legal education is the most recent phase in engagement of law professors with social media which goes back to the early 2000s. It goes back to web blogs, to blogs. Uh, so I started my first law-related blog back in about 2005. And then from blogs, people eventually migrated into Twitter. And there's a big Twitterverse of law professors. And I'm there also, and now podcasting. And I'm interested in sort of experimenting with new media and with new ways of communicating with 
different kinds of audiences, academic audiences, students, the practice, broader society, and social media is obviously a great place to explore different ways to have conversations. Completely agree. At least I'm finding that to be the case. Um, now, how does the Future Law Project fit with your Future Law podcast, if at all? So they're related thematically. So the Future Law Project at Pitt Law is my effort to connect the various ways in which I interact with colleagues at other law schools and colleagues in the practicing bar and other colleagues in the legal profession and the legal services industry. So the, the, my outward facing engagement in that respect about the future of all these things. Connect that with the scholarship that I do, which focuses on information governance and systems of knowledge production and systems of knowledge sharing. So things like copyright and trademark, which are my core legal academic subjects, but the research extends well beyond just copyright and trademark. But in my head, these themes about knowledge governance and information governance are parts of questions about the future of law on a larger scale. So how is the practice of law organized? How is education in law organized? Relates to how we're sharing our expertise. It relates to how we advise clients to share knowledge and information and data. And so the Future Law Project is a way to connect the scholarly research in those spaces with the more practical engagement that I've tried to cultivate through the podcast and other activities. Since you've been doing this, um, what are some of the interesting themes that you have learned from the podcast and connecting with um, profession, professionals in legal education and in the practice around the world? Are there some consistent themes that you've learned? I'll highlight a couple of things that have stood out for me. One is, it really is a global conversation about change, innovation, technology, business, access to justice, opportunity and impact. The conversation about reforming law schools that a lot of us in the US participate in is a conversation that is often limited to US-based law schools or limited to law schools that are members of the AALS or accredited by the American Bar Association. Conversations about admissions and accreditation and licensure and debt loads and skills training. These are all topics that are familiar to deans and experienced law professors all across the US. It turns out that many of those same themes are echoed in conversations that you'll have with colleagues in the UK with colleagues in Europe, colleagues in Asia, colleagues in Australia, colleagues in Africa. The specific institutions of legal education are quite different as you move from country to country. In many countries, you're talking about educating undergraduates rather than ed educating postgraduates. Uh, articling uh, in many countries as a precondition to becoming a fully licensed member of a bar. That's a very different thing compared to what we know in the US. But the underlying conceptual questions, 
how should we be teaching? Who should we be teaching? What should we be teaching them and when? What is the world going to look like in five or 10 years? So not only how do we prepare students to succeed that first day out of law school, how do we make sure that the students and the new lawyers are prepared to succeed as their careers evolve? because the economy is going to evolve, because society is going to evolve, because finance is going to evolve, because the environment is going to evolve. What are the interests in resilience that impact our graduates, that impact the communities and clients that they serve? Those are universal questions. And it's fascinating to me to talk to a law professor in Australia or to talk to a law dean in France or to talk to somebody who's got a lot of experience in the Canadian system and hear their perspectives on this. The other thing related to the global impact here is that through the podcast, I've generated reactions from people in corners of the world I would never have expected to hear from. I get emails from law students. It's a huge interest in this topic from law students. I get interest from East Africa. I get interest from Central Asia. I get interest from Turkey. I get interest from former Soviet republics in Eastern Europe. I get messages from law students saying, in effect, I love these conversations. I'm desperate for this information. I totally want to know how my career is going to develop in this completely fast-moving, unknowable world. And our podcast is one of a very small number of resources that appears to be starting to explore what these conversations are. So that's both enormously fun for me. It's also satisfying to know that we're helping to support an ecosystem of information that's going to help the next generation of lawyers develop around the world. I love your global reach. And one thing that has been astonishing to me in my short less than a month of podcasting is there are like 11 other countries who have someone who has listened to this podcast. I mean, that is incredible that you start something and you're reaching all over the world. I'm not yet getting fan mail like you are, <laughs> Professor <laughs> Madison, but I can only aspire to that. You come to uh, the Legal Academy from practice. Uh, it, you practiced in San Francisco and Silicon Valley for nine years. And can you tell us how did those experiences um, influence your scholarship now and your view of legal institutions and um, how legal education and legal practice should evolve? Wow, that could take me the full podcast to answer. So I was with two different private law firms. I was with a sort of a boutique practice in San Francisco in the late 80s and early 1990s with a firm that was a spinoff of some much larger San Francisco firms in the kind of classic way in which ambitious lawyers in big law firms often go out on their own because they think that they can do things better. And in my experience, the people I were work, was working for at the time and who are still going strong in terms of the practice that they founded and built, uh, they were probably right. They did found a, build, a law firm that uh, had some distinctive advantages over the larger firms that they had exited. And then I shifted gears in the early 1990s and went from a boutique firm in San Francisco to a much larger a private firm in Palo Alto and was in Silicon Valley for about four years. And I should disclose that I'm a native of what is now Silicon Valley. I grew up in Menlo Park. I grew up in Menlo Park when nobody knew where Menlo Park was. Menlo Park was not at the time the center of the universe, the way it has sort of become for certain sectors 
of society. But when I was going back to Palo Alto to practice law, I was really going back to a community that I knew pretty well from where I had grown up. I went to law school in Palo Alto. Uh, I was familiar with that territory. And this was at the early stages of Silicon Valley. So a couple of things came out of all of that experience. Nine years of full-time practicing law as I transitioned into the legal academic setting. One is I was in two very different organizations, two very different legal cultures in terms of the enterprises I was a part of, also two very different cultures in terms of the San Francisco business community and the Palo Alto and Silicon Valley business community. Back then, unlike today, back then those were two very different worlds in terms of client expectations, in terms of styles of law practice, in terms of what you were expected to do in your role as a lawyer in counseling companies, whether you're a litigator or a, a business person uh, or some other kind of advocate or counselor. So I got really good, deep views of the diversity of the ways in which lawyers could function with clients, diversity of the ways in which lawyers could function in a community, diversity of ways in which lawyers could function in a broader social setting. Uh, second, uh, I learned up close that the actual practice of law often does not involve a lot of law. Uh, the longer you are in the private bar anyway, the law firm sector, the more responsibility you get, the more contact you have with clients and accountability to clients, it's really relationships. It's trust building and trust managing and all kinds of skills and assets that no one teaches you about in law school. Well, at least back then in the 1980s, when I went to law school, nobody taught me about that sort of thing. Some people get good mentorship and training as they go into the practice of law and they acquire those skills. Some people don't. Uh, but it really taught me that law schools, even then, were prioritizing not necessarily the right mix of skills and aptitudes to prepare their graduates to thrive over the course of a full career. Yes, law school did a great job of getting people ready to go for that first job, that first year out of law school, because those jobs often really rely very heavily on the analytic skills that law schools traditionally focus on. But as you get further into a career, the more the additional skills come to the fore and you need to be a more broadly rounded professional to succeed, whether you're in a private law firm or in any other setting in the legal services economy. So what did I take away from all that and how do I put that to use to today? Well, today I've evolved a teaching style that really tries to put a lot of those additional skills front and center when I'm talking about analytic training in the classroom. So I'm a classroom teacher. In the jargon of legal academia, I'm a podium teacher. I don't run a clinic. I don't supervise an experiential learning program. I teach copyright law. I teach trademark law. For a long time, I taught contracts as the required course in the first year curriculum. And to certain people in certain respects, I look like a kind of classic Kingsfield in the classroom contracts professor. I used to teach contracts by starting like Kingsfield did in the paper chase with Hawkins versus McGee in the case of the hairy hand, because I'm a big fan of tradition in a certain sense. I would never treat students in the classroom in real life the way he treated students in that movie. Glad uh, to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but I would, I would tell students right off the bat, once I'd had a few minutes of, of introduction, like what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and how to transition from a more uh, sort of stereotypically cynical view of 
Socratic method in the classroom to what I actually want to do, which is a much more conversational style. But I did that to set up the expectation that this is different, that the student's experience in my classrooms is meant to be not your classic mid-century American law school experience that yes, we'll read cases and we'll read statutes and we'll take them apart and we'll figure out how to build arguments. But I will also put challenges in front of students that task them with learning social skills, learning collaboration skills, focusing on things like emotional intelligence, project management, thinking about client interests first and how to solve client problems in law as an instrument as part of a portfolio of tools that client lawyers use to help clients realize outcomes and if necessary, change systems at larger levels. So the, thing, the, other, the last thing I would say about my practice experience is that it was very broad. I was in two business law firms, but I was not limited to a particular sector of law. I was not just a copyright lawyer. I was not just an intellectual property lawyer. I was a business litigator. And then when I moved to Palo Alto, where business and litigation are very, very close cousins of one another, I was doing a lot of deals at the same time as I was litigating cases. But I was doing IP cases. I was doing securities cases. I was doing construction cases, environmental cases. I was in bankruptcy court. I was resolving uh, disputes between brothers who were co-owners of businesses. Uh, my war story portfolio is pretty rich and pretty diverse. Uh, and what that means is I bring a broader perspective on how different parts of the law interact when I'm talking about copyright with my students or when I'm talking with contracts with my students. I say to my contract students, learn something about bankruptcy law. Because if you know how bankruptcy law works, this is just a micro example, if you know how bankruptcy law works, you can be a better litigator in a contracts or a commercial dispute. You don't want to be surprised halfway through your contracts or commercial dispute to learn that there's a whole world of bankruptcy court out there that's going to disrupt your expectations and your client's expectations. Know that in advance. So these things all, you know, we know as practicing lawyers how these things all speak to one another. Students intuit, at least initially, that these are separate silos that don't necessarily speak to one another. So I'm very emphatic when I'm teaching my students that there's a systems quality to all of this. And there are systems within systems and there are evolutionary systems. And they have to understand the systems quality of what they're learning. I applaud your efforts to bring emotional intelligence, um, teaching collaborative work to your students because as we were discussing before we started recording, um, those sorts of skills are so essential to leadership and uh, appropriate counseling um, of clients. And our students start with this technical expertise, but we don't train them a lot in law schools um, in these other emotional intelligence uh, qualities. How are you doing that in your doctrinal courses? Can you give us a couple of examples? I'll give you one really good, rich example, which is this. About 15 years ago, after, I guess probably a little longer than that because it was before I got tenure, I gave up the practice of giving end of semester exams to my students. Right, so wow, can you say that again? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> right. going to want to take your class. <laughs> everybody, everybody stop. Well, yes and no, right? So on the one hand, I realized very early on that the classic end of semester comprehensive exam in law school is a terrible instrument for assessing what we really should be assessing in terms of measuring the progress of our students. Like, so if you spend 14 weeks in my classroom, I have some expectations as to what I expect you to take away from that experience. Every good teacher has their own set of expectations in that regard. 
most of my expectations do not have to do with the nuts and bolts and nitty gritty of some field of law. 14 weeks of copyright law with me, if somebody can basically articulate the, the, the core elements of how you obtain copyright protection, how you defend a case for copyright infringement and a handful of key exceptions and limitations in the copyright space on the substantive law, I've done my job because that's what I want people to retain day one after the semester, six months after that semester ends, a year or five years after that. The details people can navigate their way to as they need to if they've got the, the basic navigation system hardwired. So I want to teach things beyond that. I want to use copyright law to teach writing skills, intellectual discipline. I want to, instead of the exams, I give my students short writing assignments throughout the semester, not drafting assignments. I give them short, open-ended, here's a problem, figure it out, give the client some advice assignments in narrative form, like write me a short I say memo, but I know from talking to lawyers recently that the whole memo thing that we teach our students often in the first year legal writing curriculum is a very outmoded mode of legal writing. But I'll, I'll borrow the form at least preliminarily, but I, the, the content is very different. Uh, I'll have them write an email or I'll have them write a composed PowerPoint deck where the hypo, the hypothetical that I give them is ambiguous, missing facts, open-ended, and it doesn't say describe the two arguments. It says, here's a problem solve it. Because I know from practice, my own practice, and from talking to practicing lawyers, the senior lawyer walks into the junior lawyer's office, or now gets the junior lawyer on the Zoom call, and says, I just got off of a call with the client, and the client has some bizarro, messy problem that the client shared with me. I'm now giving that to you. And by the way, I'm going to disappear for the weekend, and I want your answer on my desk when I come back. Now, I won't be that abusive, and I won't be so compressed in terms of the timing, but I tell my students very explicitly that's sort of the ethos that I'm trying to equip them to handle. Greater support from me, a bit more elaboration from me, more time to work through things, and an enormous amount of feedback from me in terms of their written product. And these are open problems, and when I say open, I mean open. I mean, they want to call the copyright office they can call the copyright office. And I've actually had some students call the copyright office for all the good that it will do them. Right? One of the things that they learn is that when you make it fully open, that's not a panacea that will help them give them the, the answer that the professor wants. And I tell them that they can collaborate with one another. My goodness, it's not forbidden, it's not banned. Absolutely not banned. And in fact, I just finished a class just the other day because I'm about to deliver the first assignment of the semester. And I make a little speech that says, look, you've been through all of your legal education to this point, because these are upper, upper level law students. I, how many opportunities have you had in other classes where your professor has encouraged you or required you to work in a team? And the answer is once. And that's because that person was in a business school class that they cross-registered for. Right? So the law school experience by design is almost entirely solitary unless you're on a journal or a moot court team or some service project, or you're in a clinic or some experiential setting where the team-based activity is more the norm. But in the classic law school setting, in the it's not the norm. Solo activity is the expectation. We know that the actual practice of law or professional services environment is enormously collaborative and only getting more so as we go forward. Not solo at all, even if you're a solo practitioner. <laughs> right, that's the irony. Solo is not solo. Uh, so my, my view is, you know, 
in a supported way, uh, not throwing people into the deep end of the pool, but walking students to the point where I can explore with them the different ways in which they can collaborate, how they can initiate collaboration, how they can benefit from collaboration, some of the drawbacks and, and, and risks associated with collaboration. I don't want to just get on a soapbox and celebrate this as if it's an uncritically good thing. Uh, it's complicated and it's a skill like any other skill that needs to be explored and learned and developed and cultivated. And starting that journey while you're in law school, to me, is a really, really important part of your experience. So ideally what they do with me is something that they can build on in part-time jobs, summer internships, other law school experiences, and they're bringing those experiences to the classroom. Sometimes uh, I get students coming to me after they've delivered a work product. And so I'll close with this anecdote here. I give that first assignment of the semester about a third of the way in. They write a paper for me. I mark up all the papers. I give the papers back. And then I'll get some students coming to talk to me afterwards. And they'll look at what I've written on their papers. And they say, wait a minute. I worked in such and such a law office last summer. And all of the assignments I did in my law office, the supervising lawyer said, I don't want a first year legal research memo. I want you to solve the client's problem. So the student says to me, you want me to do for class what I'm being told to do at my job? And I say, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I want you to do. Isn't and it like, terrible? They're surprised. <laughs> they are surprised. But the good thing, of course, number one, this light bulb goes on for them because at long last, they're having a law school experience that the academic side syncs up with what the professional expectations are. So they feel like they're training for the actual job that they're lining up for. Two, they get that message earlier in the semester. Right. We know that one of the vices of the comprehensive end of semester exam is you might get a student that gets all the way to this end of the semester, somehow swings and misses at the way to organize the material on an exam, gets a mediocre grade, and has no way to recover from that in time to improve their record. I want to deliver the hard news earlier in the semester so that they get at least two more opportunities between then and the end of the semester to escalate, get on a better trajectory and land with a better record that shows up on their transcript. Does it work in every single instance? No. Does it work in the overwhelming majority of the instances? Yes. So one of the things I've learned by doing this in these two classes over about 15 years is I've eliminated that cohort of students that I used to worry about at the end of the semester because I'd read those exams at the end of the semester and I'd think to myself, where was that person for 14 weeks? What were they listening to? What were they reading? I don't have that problem anymore. I get to the end of the semester and every single student paper I read is at least competent at the basic analytical tools that I'm trying to communicate. And that, you know, that gives me a, a you know, it doesn't give me perfect confidence that everybody's going to go off and become a great lawyer, but it, it reinforces my sense that I'm on a better path in terms of aligning my teaching strategies with what is essential for professional success for the students and what is ultimately going to be helpful to their clients and communities when they get out there into the world. So that assignment example reminds me a little bit of my conversation with uh, Professor Deborah Merritt, um, who worked on the IELTS study um, funded by Access Lux Beyond the Bar and yep. talking about how the students really need the threshold questions in the subject, but then beyond that, it's all these other skills. Has your experience uh, in incorporating the skill building into your class that is an unusual model for a law professor, has it inspired colleagues to do the same or something similar? 
colleagues at other law schools. Fair enough. <laughs> so I, I'm pretty well networked in the intellectual property teachers community, and I could give you name and school of at least three or four, maybe five colleagues I have at other schools around the US who have talked to me. I've written this up. There's a journal article from the St. Louis University Law Journal from a number of years ago. It's called Writing to Learn Law, which sort of really walks through the mechanics of what I do. Uh, all of my syllabi are on the open internet. Uh, all of my assignments are on the open internet. So I'm happy to have people copy uh, any and all uh, of what I do. And some colleagues at other law schools have borrowed some or all of it in their courses. And the indirect feedback I get from them from time to time is that they like it. Well, I hope some of our listeners will go find some of those materials. I know I will um, and, and see how we can incorporate them. Makes tremendous sense. There are some, since you're, um, this is focused on the future of legal education and we'll get to that question before we wrap up, my podcast is, but you've been working uh, in a broader sense, as you indicated on future, the future of law, not just the education, but the law practice as well and looking at it globally. What do you say to the people who make the assertion that with so much automation and outsourcing to other countries that soon there will be less value to a law degree? What I hear from the diverse population of people I talk to around the world. And I talk to people who are in startup legal tech environments. I talk to people who are in big law firm environments. I had a conversation just the other day with a couple of people who are leaders of some of the better known ALSPs, alternative legal services providers. I haven't yet talked to people in the big four space, but that's definitely on my agenda, is that the value of a classic law degree, and so let's say we're talking about the JD in the American system, it's definitely going to change. It's never been a fixed thing. Uh, I think what you're going to see going forward, what you're already seeing, to be perfectly honest, is more pluralism or diversity in terms of how legal expertise and the legal education is valued in the marketplace and in society. So people in the private bar talk a lot about the idea of practicing at the top of your license. So automation and technology systems, algorithms, big databases, uh, robots, uh, some people just call them all robots to be a little bit provocative, but it's not inaccurate, are, they're here, they're here. Uh, I talked to my former students in the practice and they say, did you know that you can upload your brief in draft form to Westlaw and Westlaw will help you rewrite your brief with better authorities? What? <laughs> well, we don't have access to that part in law schools. That's not part of the package that Westlaw sells to us, well, but it is part of the package that, that you can get if you have enough money at the higher levels of the private bar. So the point is that the technology is just getting better and better and better and more sophisticated and more sophisticated. Yes. Will the technology be able to think in the way that we imagine that human beings can think, it can be self-aware, can it reason autonomously? No, right? For all the power of the technology, that's not going to happen. So at the very least, there's gonna be some divide 
between areas where human judgment and autonomous thinking and reason really is important and valued at every level of the system. So, so smaller scale dispute resolution, um, access to justice questions, as well as the super sophisticated big money billion dollar deals, right? So there's a place for that human judgment in all aspects of the system. The other thing uh, that's really important to recognize is that the legal system as we conceive of it is not limited to the classic three branches of government and lawyers advocating to resolve disputes in court. So in law schools, we are largely built around this model that we're training people to go off to be advocates, whether they're in deals or they're in courtrooms, and we're training lawyers to be problem solvers on a matter by matter or client by client basis. Right, client comes, client has a problem, we dive in with our legal expertise and we help that client achieve an outcome. Still important, but technology is increasingly important as part of the suite of tools that we bring to bear on those problems. The other side of what's going on out there in the world, and it's an increasingly important side and an increasingly high dollar value side or high Euro problem or whatever currency we're living with, uh, is systems building, system government governance, system design, where the goal of the problem or the goal to be, to be achieved, the problem to be solved, is not a matter specific or client specific problem. It's a larger scale, how do we get the enterprise to function optimally the way the enterprise should function? How do we get the system either within the enterprise or of which the enterprise is a part to function on an optimal basis? Uh, how should Facebook and other social media enterprises manage the problem of false and misleading information that circulates on Facebook, to, to take a very obvious, prominent, contemporary example. That's not a resolve the specific matter kind of problem. It's a system thinking kind of a problem. It's one where lawyers really need to be a part of the room or in the room to be part of that, that strategy. It's a type of thinking. It's a type of skill set that really does not lend itself wholly to algorithms and robots. Although again, algorithms and robots are either part of the problem or they're part of the solution or both. So you have to be able to work with the technology people. But the value of the law degree is characteristically different in that setting than it is in a matter specific dispute resolution setting. So I think as law professors and people running law programs, we need to be expansive and pluralistic in communicating how lawyers are participating in modern society. It's not one standard model with exceptions, which is the way that we have often thought about it. It's now lots of different models and we've got to get better at describing those different ways and communicating those different opportunities to incoming students, supporting our outgoing students in uh, taking advantage of those. Well, I had hoped that your answer would be something like that. I think that the human judgment component and the problem solving piece are things that our students and our graduates will take um, not only to the profession, but to other areas of, uh, of society, as you indicated, um, in ways that AI and, uh, and robots won't be able to do or not do as well. But given the fact that it is changing. The practice of law is no longer this single matter um, problem resolution or dispute resolution. And there are these systems that need changing and differing roles for lawyers in society. How 
will legal education evolve in your opinion over the next decade or how should it evolve if it's if they're two different answers i think we should be on the lookout for two things happening more or less at the same time but at different speeds so one thing to look out for is what you might call ordinary evolution which is the kind of relatively small scale improvements and innovation that we'll see coming out of individual law schools. So you look at current law schools, whether you're talking about the US or any other part of the world, law faculties and law programs, you'll see deans and directors and leaders and funders of those programs working very hard to solve very, very critical problems on the ground at a local level to improve the classroom experience, to improve experiential education, to create better connections between the educational pathways and opportunities for practice and career success. And there's many, many ways in which all of those things can be improved, uh, reduce the cost of attendance, diversify the pipeline to create opportunities for a broader range of people and better impacts in society. Um, so the economics can be improved, the content can be improved, the staffing can be improved, the, the student body can be improved, all of which go to eventually improving the character of the presence of law in people's lives. The second thing that is already underway that I think you'll see happening at a faster pace, again, not only in the US, but around the world is innovations in legal education that do not take place within the walls of standard existing law schools or law faculties. And there's no single label to put on this phenomenon, but you're going to see a growth, I think, in autonomous or semi-autonomous legal education suppliers which is not completely a fair word to label them with because it has a kind of commercial connotation, which is not necessarily appropriate, but we'll just use the word for the time being. These may not be degree providers. These might not create pathways to a bar exam and to licensing as a full lawyer, but they may provide degrees of legal education and training that get people up to speed and qualified to be productive professional service providers in legally related contexts. Some of these will come out of law school. Some of these will be spin-offs of entrepreneurial faculty at law schools. Some of these will come out of the practicing bar. Some of these will come out of the big four system. Some of these will be legal tech entrepreneurs. You look at some of the uh, founders and successful entrepreneurs in the ALSP space, the larger alternative legal services providers, they already have the infrastructure because they're service providers in a sophisticated professional services environment. The moment that they add sophisticated diverse training modules to their existing palette of opportunities, boom, it's essentially not exactly a law school equivalent, but something that's gonna supply high quality education in the legal space. Google is already moving aggressively into education. Amazon is already underwriting the education of a lot of its employees at uh, accredited educational institutions. There's no reason that Amazon has to farm out the education for Amazon employees. Why doesn't Amazon set up Amazon University? Apple already has Apple University. Uh, so I don't mean to endorse any one of these pathways as superior to the others. Some of them might work well, some of them might work poorly, but I do think that you're going to start to see a flourishing of that ecology of providers because I think that the demand is there. Back to what we were talking about in terms of collaboration skills, project management skills, emotional intelligence skills, the kinds of things and capabilities that classic law schools are not well equipped to provide until 
until they really retool themselves substantially. And I don't see current law schools retooling themselves substantially. So if, if Apple U or Google U or legal tech entrepreneurial U provides uh, you know, this suite of competencies, you mentioned Deborah Merritt and the IELTS report and the, the, the inventory of competencies and capabilities that the practicing bar wants to see in addition to analytic capabilities, right? that's a big opportunity space for providers to develop institutions and content. Uh, and I think that the, the world at large needs that. We have, you know, we got big problems to solve out there. You wanna solve climate change, you're not gonna solve climate change by training people to read cases more narrowly and specifically as the classic legal education model does. You need a really big synthetic team-oriented approach to thinking big ways about climate change and law should be there, has to be there. Well, this discussion has been really enlightening. I have enjoyed it, but we have run out of time and I haven't even asked you about your Jeopardy appearance 20 years ago. So we'll save that for the next episode. That'll, that'll be I volume two. <laughs> I hope you'll come back for it. I absolutely will. This has been a delight. Thank you so much, Professor Madison. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast and network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.